Eyes cool. 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 You are listening to the Eyes Cool podcast. It's called that because Eyes Cool sounds like iSchool. And who doesn't love a pun? The iSchool podcast is a production of students and faculty of the Information School and the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect those of the Information School or of the UW-Madison itself. I'm your host, Jonathan Senchin, a professor in the iSchool at UW-Madison, and I'm also the director of the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture. This podcast is brought to you by students in LIS 601, Information Perspectives and Contexts, which is the introductory seminar for the master's degree in library and information studies. The conversations here grow out of our conversations in class and are guided by and produced by our students who introduce themselves in each of their segments. This is the fourth episode of the third season. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for being here. If you're just finding us through a friend, classmate, or uh, just searching, please subscribe, leave us a review, rate, recommend us. You can listen back to our previous seasons, which are embedded in uh, earlier versions of this class and others at the iSchool. Today, we are going to hear from two student groups, one focusing primarily on LGBTQ uh, people and their intersections with libraries and also uh, thinking about queer theory. They're going to focus on uh, queering the catalog in a series of essays written by Emily Drabinsky and one uh, co-authored with Amber Billy, and that'll be in our first segment. In the second segment, you'll hear from a group of students who are focusing on the topic of libraries beyond books. And today they bring us a conversation about public lands, state national parks, reserves, their role in communities, and also uh, particularly their connections to libraries as public resources and institutions. Thanks always for listening. Here we go, group number one. Jordan and uh, I am interested in LGBTQ topics because uh, I am myself gender fluid, got a personal dog in this race. I'm Robin. I'm like Jordan. I'm interested in this topic because I am non-binary and a member of this LGBT community and I'm also just interested in minority representation in libraries in general. I'm Reagan, like both of you guys. Um, I'm also invested in this personally, identify as lesbian. And other than that, it's just kind of queer theory is something that I've 
been dabbling with throughout university, but really just kind of wanted to sink into now. My name is Monica, and I'm really interested in learning about accessibility in libraries and archives, especially when it comes to minority um, representation. We are looking at three different texts today, and we could just start out with the first one, which is Queering the Catalog by Emily Drabinsky. So pretty much Queering the Catalog, my takeaway from it was um, looking at the queer theory approach to cataloging and kind of trying to examine the ideas of if the Library of Congress subject headings are really actually fitting the needs of the LGBTQ community um, or if this needs to be kind of redone and relooked at in our current age. I guess to give our listeners further context, does someone want to kind of delve into like why the Library of Congress might be viewed as problematic for members of the queer community? I dug through it a little bit. One thing that like I, I did find that I, it was actually good was I looked up homosexual and it says, is, there's a note in there that says best reference record only, not a valid heading, and then directs users to the terms gay and lesbian, which is what people from the LGBTQ community actually use to refer to themselves. But then I checked uh, transsexual just to see, and that still has like two pages of results and doesn't direct to any other terms, despite this being like an outdated term that very few, if any, people in the trans community actually use to refer to themselves. Yeah, so we still have all of these like super outdated terms and relationships. It's like it's just like the, the terms that people who fit the norm use to describe um, minorities and marginalized people versus the terms we actually use to describe ourselves. Um, in Drabinsky's articles, especially in Queering the Catalog, talk about like this idea of um, queer theory and creating that cognitive dissonance where it's like so much of cataloging is creating like these stable fixed categories, like making sure that you have subject headings that like are standard so that can see it across the board so that your library's search headings are the same as the other counties search headings. Trubinsky comes up with this and brings up this really cool idea, the idea that we can't just, and I mean, I think so many scholars and activists have thought about this before Drabinsky too. It's like, we can't just think about these identities and subject headings as like, this is how it always is. Because like, when we come at it from that mindset, like that's how issues are created. And there's this idea of querying the catalog where it's like, this is a really, like kind of not monumental idea, but it's, I think for a lot of librarians who are so stuck in like, this is how we make metadata. This is how we like create subject headings. This is the piece, the the story that I use specifically for this that has a fixed vocab. Like, I feel like for some librarians, this could like kind of just be a little bit of a brain explosion. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's sort of a history of being like, we have to standardize things. Libraries use these Dewey Decimal System or we use Library of Congress and that's the way it is. And we don't change that because that's the right way to do it. And introducing queer theory in which so much of it is very subjective and based on individual communities and based on you know, geographic language 
and culture that is very different from how I think traditional library science tends to view how we categorize and catalog things. Yeah, I mean, I know in the article it kind of mentioned how the idea of queer theory is that there is this non-normativity. I mean, she actually made this really cool point about how you almost need the standardization of everything in order to point out everything that has gone wrong and everything that you can see that really isn't speaking out for these minority voices. And I think, like, actually something to kind of bring to the table is she addressed um, this question of should cataloging try to, like, quick fix its errors and try to update its system, or should it kind of leave this system to stagnate in order to actually really show all the faults in it so that you're not going to continue to think that the Library of Congress is running this perfect, seamless organization. Right, and I think that kind of links into the other article that she wrote, Radical Cataloging, um, where it's like, you can't really even fix it, you because it's like, there's always going to be inherent bias. Like, catalogs are created by people, and people have inherent bias. Whether that's open-mindedness or closed-mindedness, your, how you build your catalog is based on experiences that you've had coming into the world and knowledge that you have. And, and so it's like, I think the idea of saying we're going to make this perfect catalog, like that's, that idea was, was thought of like a really long time ago by a bunch of old white men who had no idea what they were doing. Like Reagan was saying, it's like this idea that like we, instead of saying like, we're going to create like this quick fix, we just need to say, we need to own up to the fact that there are these huge gaps. I think though, that also mimics how we as a society view gender and sexuality though, where it's like, rather than saying, you know, like there are going to be these gaps and that's okay. We, we have to be super quick to create labels and boxes for people and in all the structures. It does make me wonder what in terms of accessibility and from the user perspective because I think when people come into a library setting they're expecting to be able to find infallible truths and to have a cataloging system that is very imperfect you also have to have some measure of education to the user to be like this is an imperfect catalog. This is based on biases. You know, you have to have a giant asterisk after everything. Yeah, I know that the um, the teaching the radical catalog also mentioned the idea of like banking education versus problem posing education, and this idea that the teaching that librarians do should have this critical aspect to it. It shouldn't just be, okay, here's what you guys are going to memorize. Like, learn this. This is the one set way that you're going to find all libraries working. It's about questioning the catalog itself and really coming to terms with, okay, here's what you need to know about the library. Here's how to actually get correct information out of it, even though it may still be a flawed system. And I think that people tend to forget the importance of those headings too, that the Library of Congress creates. I mean, how we view those headings creates those norms. And then those norms are also kind of what impacts legislature who is seen as human, who's allowed to immigrate here, who is allowed to use certain bathrooms or apply for certain jobs, um, what kind of rights people are, ex are able to exercise. And, and that's stuff that's determined by those categories that the Library of Congress kind of implements and uses. The third article we were talking about that we read 
was questioning authority by Amber, Billy and Emily Drabinsky. And there is a comment in there about how the Library of Congress shelves material about bestiality near those about transgender people. And both are under the umbrella term of deviant lifestyles. A lot of the transphobic and homophobic comments that and uh, motivations that people have often against the LGBT community refer to like this as being a lifestyle choice rather than an identity as well as you know transgender people being deviant and thus dangerous or you know not appropriate to be around kids not appropriate to use the bathrooms that match with their identity that sort of thing. So that really perpetuates a lot of the issues like Monica was bringing up about like who gets to use what bathroom and what sort of legislature we have. Right, like it creates even further like discrimination against a really super vulnerable community. And I guess like you could also kind of connect that to the issues of mental health that have been connected to search terms with the LGBTQ community, um, where people have kind of had these not necessarily correct perceptions that if you do kind of categorize yourself beyond certain binaries that you are um, suffering some sort of mental health situation. Yeah, I mean, these are really important things to discuss as well, because the Library of Congress, like, their data is not only for themselves. I know that a lot of what they're using or what other open databases are using comes from what they're getting from the Library of Congress because it is such this air quotes here, reliable source of information. So if they're spewing out all sorts of fake information and um, kind of wrong views of these already misunderstood minorities, then it's just gonna keep spreading in a kind of vicious cycle. Next up, Libraries Beyond the Book with a conversation about public lands. Uh, welcome everyone to LIS uh, 601 podcast. Um, thank you, Dr. Jonathan Sension, for giving us the space to have this conversation and we'll go ahead and get started. Um, this is the uh, outside of, what do we call it again? Libraries outside of the Beyond. library? Beyond the, book. beyond the book. Libraries Beyond the Book. Yes, welcome everyone. Yes, it's nice to have you here uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, I have with me four amazing guests and I want to welcome them. I'm going to let them introduce themselves and we're going to start with Clay. Uh, yes. So if you could all uh, go with your names, pronouns, uh, where you would call home and, uh, and, and then we'll move on from there. I'm Clarissa or Clay. I use they them pronouns. Um, currently living in Madison, um, although recently relocated from the West Coast. I am Valerie. I would now call home Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, she, her pronouns and trying to get educated. I'm Emily. I also use she, her pronouns I, and Madison some. Uh, I'm Genevieve. My pronouns are also she, her, hers. Um, I'm from Northeast Wisconsin originally, but I've been in Madison for a few years now. Wonderful. And I'm your host, John Walker, and welcome to Yay. the show. All right. So 
public lands, state, national, and local parks, nature reserves. Who's in our group has been to any of those? Okay, just counting hands, good number of us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Genevieve, I'm sure you've been to some public lands as well. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so what are public lands and how would you all describe them? I uh, think of nature reserves when I think of public lands. So spaces that are specifically set aside by uh, a governing body to protect the flora and fauna, to preserve it so it is not uh, at risk of further deterioration. Yeah, the, um, my little brief definition that I came up with was that um, it's a space of natural land that is nominally open to the public for free or a relatively small fee. I guess when I think of um, public lands, I think of like the Woody Guthrie song, this land is your land, this land is mine. <laughs> Just sort of uh, a space that's uh, available for enjoyment and study um, that's set aside with a specific purpose of, of just being there <laughs> for to have. Yeah, I would agree with those definitions. Um, I had also said uh, like land set aside um, by a governing body for for um, like preservation and public use. Absolutely. So um, those are all great definitions. That's really cool. I've also been on some public lands for a good amount of time. Uh, love them. They're amazing. Great idea. Uh, according to Ken Burns, it is America's greatest idea. Uh, oh, yes. That's a familiar with Ken. <laughs> Good old Ken. Uh, yeah, no one does a tracking shot like Ken Burns. <laughs> but uh, so that, that leads us into our subject of today, uh, which we kind of didn't introduce in the beginning, which I will take full responsibility for, which is how public lands mirror uh, are analogous and or differ from libraries and how they uh, affect communities and, and their role in our society and how libraries um, can learn from that and vice versa maybe. Although we don't have anyone from public lands with us, so feel free to criticize as much as possible. <laughs> Related to this, how would we classify public lands as libraries? Um, would you classify them as libraries and how? Or do they even fit that mold altogether? Um, and what fits inside these comparisons and what doesn't? What do you guys think? If I could, take the floor to start out, uh, as I think of public lands, you know, we think about the nature that grows there. So you've got a wide variety of trees and plants, you know, or the flora of the area, and you have a wide variety of animals that are living and generally their natural habitat. So when it comes to libraries um, versus archives and how those things are acquired within the two different industries, so archives, they usually uh, get records from directly from an author or creator or an organizing body versus libraries that is usually through order. So it's a little bit different, but I think it's more of a natural kind of acquisition of these things. And I would say that if the world is the creator of those things, that these are really archival places that are preserving just the natural growth and existence of these things. If you want to get pedantic, libraries generally are a lot of published materials and archives are mostly unpublished materials. I generally don't think of plants or trees or animals as being published. <laughs> um, 
I can't think of anything that is closer to original order than the natural life cycles of forests and environments uh, and provenance as opposed to organized by a subject matter or genre as a library would be. Uh, and I also think when it comes to opportunities of research that archives are more of a destination versus a library uh, and offering those things. So non print records, things that are kept in provenance and original order. And they can just do the natural research on the things that are there. And it's a place that we can learn and develop new information from. We learn through synthesis of information that we gain from the archive, not just any one source within it. I, I really like the comparison of, of archives and nature reserves. I guess I was thinking more city parks and um, how I think that would kind of tie into the um, nature preserves as archives. I think if, if we're going with that, then a good kind of draw along comparison would be city parks as public libraries. I feel like they fulfill a lot of the same needs in some ways and that they're providing a space for community to gather as well as a space for free recreation and education as well. Well, and for example, also here in Madison, they've been having democracy in the park for absentee ballots this year, having people come and vote and the option to sign on to their absentee ballots as a witness. I, when I first started to consider this question and think about similarities and differences, I, I was, I latched onto this idea that maybe one of the possible differences is that um, parks seem primarily like, or public lands seem primarily like collections of data, whereas libraries are collections of information. Um, it, with the understanding that data is sort of like the atom and uh, information is like the matter. But I think the more that I thought about it, it seems like uh, libraries are sources of data too. Um, we gather raw information from the data that's provided by user statistics and who's using libraries. And um, there's lots of information that can be gathered. There's lots of raw data in libraries too. So it I started thinking that there were maybe some differences and the more I thought about it, um, I found more similarities. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with all of these ideas so far. And um, when I was thinking about it in, in kind of simple terms, the like really quick definition of libraries that I came up with was um, a curated collection of resources. So I feel like these like parks are um, like a collection of natural resources that we are assigning a curator to. A very good point those are all really great points for me uh yeah like I, I would i would agree with every single one of those i would also uh i think we talked about this a little bit it's like i see um less it's hard to make the, the connection but i think it does exist as libraries and public lands as points of extraction for communities um and that can be both good and bad right like Ethnobotany wise, you can go into parks and find uh, plants and remains and archaeological sites and things that help us gain knowledge of so many aspects of uh, past communities and what was going on before and help increase our knowledge of the biological world as well as the, um, the human world. And then libraries, you know, the obvious connection, but the extraction part is like, who, who did those lands come from? 
and who was there first, right? Uh, so that's the easy one. But I think you could also say the same for libraries in a way, because in so many ways, one, the actual physical library, especially a, a public library, like you could say, okay, but where did that land come from? If you want to get really technical, but also the information inside of it, sometimes there's extractive information inside of it, the library, um, you know, especially when you bring up ideas of history and anthropology and stuff. But uh, definitely information about people's cultures and uh, stories, even mythologies that were not uh, willingly or maybe ethically uh, taken from certain places. Or sometimes you have information that is just completely incorrect. You know, it's like poisoning. Because <laughs> like, it's poisoning the streams of information about the world. <laughs> so that's something I think about a lot and about what the role of those information institutions really are in that sense and how we view those things. And something I think like a filter that's important to always keep in mind. Thanks for listening. We will be back very soon with more student produced segments, interviews with faculty in the UW Madison iSchool and conversations about library and information studies coming from LIS 601, Information Perspectives and Contexts. Until next time. <laughs>